Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the 1980s. After the success of Moonraker, what were Eon Productions to do? Do they go even more outlandish than space? Or do they go back into the history of Bond and try to recapture some of that Ian Fleming original magic? The answer, for your eyes only. <laughs> and to unclasp the secret documents that have the label of the your eyes only on them in an attempt to tie this intro to a theme of the film <laughs> and to help me process the top secret documents that relate to this film somehow it's Stuart late hello natalie hello everyone yes it's always good when a character in the film hands someone a folder marked with the title of the film that's always fun Yes, this is Raven Bond, if I didn't mention that in the intro. But did you notice something, Stu, about that title sequence? I did, Natalie. I noticed that uh, we got a very uh, important cameo from Sheena Easton, the singer of the song. Uh, I think the only time in Bond history that's happened. That is correct. And apparently it was because Maurice Binder, who famously uh, did all the opening title sequences, he thought Sheena Easton was stunning and that, you know, he wanted to bring her into the opening title sequence and have her singing and see her singing. And I don't know why. I mean, she's gorgeous, sure, but he's had all sorts of other people sing the theme songs. Sure, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, like, she's very pretty. There's, there's no denying that. But it's like, I don't understand why exactly her. Hey, we've well, all got our thing, I guess. She's a Scottish singer, and I'm pretty sure she's famous for this song and Morning Train, which is my oh, baby. Of course, yeah. Takes the morning train. Because I'm sure I read an article about her once that said every concert she does, she sort of closes with those two songs. Sure. <laughs> but I wouldn't know any more songs of hers. Well, Shinny Eastern fans would know more. I assume they would. But of all the films to have the singer in the title sequence, <laughs> Sheena Easton, you know, as far as looking back in hindsight of all yeah. of the amazing vocalists who've sung on Bond films. I mean, Sheena when Madonna Easton, doesn't get to be in the in the credits, you know. Exactly. <laughs> Shirley Bassey did it three times. Yeah, exactly. Like Shirley Bassey didn't even get a cameo. Exactly. It's a weird opening as well, because largely because she's there. And you wonder if uh, Maurice Binder actually asked whether she'd nude up or not. <laughs> Maybe that was his plan. He's like, oh, she's really pretty. I know. I'll put her in the title sequence. And you know what the ladies wear in Bond title sequences? Not much. He's getting more and more with the boobs. They, they, we, they're we, really getting out there. Yeah. yeah. We have joked about this before, but it's definitely a trend. Like, well, the, 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 the HD transfers really make for some really crisp picture quality, I'll just say. You know, it's funny because this is the first film that I haven't watched on, because I don't have this one on DVD. This is one of the Bond films for me that I don't watch that often. I don't see that often. Hmm. So I had to rent it on Apple TV, paid my four ninety nine. Oh, wow. And rented it. And my DVDs, I don't think were an HD print. This one, I think, was. So it looks great in some senses, but then you just get a little bit too much of the old Roger Moore crinkle eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we can get into this a bit later, but uh, he he's definitely, between Moonraker and this one, time started to catch up with Mr. Moore. It is funny. You start to see the change. and um, He's, he's I, going I through wanna... the change. Okay. <laughs> got the male menopause. He's in the, the um, man change. Well, the thing is, is that he was actually 
potentially not going to be in this film. So he signed a contract for three films, which, of course, is Live and Let Die Man with the Golden Gun, The Spy Who Loved Me, and then he negotiated film by film. So he negotiated for Moonraker, Right. But then with For Your Eyes Only, there was a whole lot of talk that he was older. You know, I think he was post 50 by this point. He's definitely 51 or 52. Yeah. So he's looking, they're looking now at other options. And according to the Wikipedia entrance, they have a couple of actors who I don't know, but I'll read you the entry. Lewis Collins, known in the UK for his portrayal of Bodie in The Professionals. Then there was another guy, Ian Ogilvie, who had been in a TV show called The Return of the Saint, which, of course, Roger Moore was in. Sure. They were looking to replace Roger Moore with the guy who's already replaced Roger Moore. Exactly. I mean, you know, he's got experience in the role. Yeah. <laughs> so there was a, a guy called Michael Jaston who had appeared as a spy in the British TV series Quiller, Q-U-I-L-L-E-R. No okay. idea about that okay. one. There was also a guy called Michael Billington. Now, he was in The Spy Who Loved Me as the lover of Agent Triple X. So you remember at the start of the film oh, when right. she gets her message and there's a very, you know, tall, dark and handsome type who goes sure. after Bond at Burngarten and ends up being shot by Bond. This is an actor called Michael Billington. He had tested for the role before and, in fact, his screen test for For Your Eyes Only was one of five times he auditioned for the role of Bond. <laughs> he was like, really throwing it out there. Yes. And then the other actor that they considered at the time was Timothy Dalton. But he declined because he didn't like the direction the series was going in at the time. Right. I mean, I mean, the, the series had been on a specific trajectory, if you look at the, the Roger Moore films, I guess. And Timothy Dalton is famous in his Bond films for wanting them to go back to being more believable and less crazy out of space stuff. So sure. you can understand if he's in the late 70s and he was a classically trained actor, he probably wasn't interested in grabbing a laser and firing a rocket into space. <laughs> and yet he was on an episode of Doctor Who later on. So, I mean, you know, make of that what you will. Oh, yes. He was a, a, a Gallifreyan, wasn't he? He was, he was Rassilon, it turns out. Is he important? He's an important person, yes. <laughs> Just, I could hear the disappointment in your voice. <laughs> I mean, we do it. We do a Doctor. We do a Doctor Who podcast, Natalie. <laughs> yes, but I can't be expected to remember all of their names. <laughs> like the name Rassilon does sound familiar, but I couldn't exactly tell you what his deal was. <laughs> is he like a good Time Lord, or is he like a master take over the universe kind of Time Lord? He's, he's more the latter than the former. He's okay. a yeah, an old, an old ruler of the Time Lords. But Tim Timothy to... Dalton had a cool uh, space glove that shot lightning. It was very cool. And a big hat. Well, he had he had the he had the big collar, and it says a lot for his his personal gravitas that he managed to pull it off. <laughs> I, I don't want to speak out of turn, Stu, and for all the Doctor Who fans who are listening, but the Gallifreyans can be real dicks. <laughs> It's true. It is true. Is that just me? I don't... Hot take. Gallifreyans, not great. <laughs> Give people unlimited power, ability to travel through space and time, they might get big heads <laughs> or indeed big collars. Big collars. Uh, yeah. Back to Bond, all this talk of casting someone else ended up being a moot point because Roger Moore agreed to come back. Now, I can't really find much and, and my rented copy didn't have a behind-the-scenes DVD extra to watch. 
So I'm not quite sure. I can't find out exactly why Roger Moore decided to do more. Maybe he wanted to match Sean Connery's record of six. Yeah, possibly. I mean, what, what was he up to at this stage? So this, this is his fifth? Fifth, yeah. Okay. But I feel like for, for every Bond film from this film on, there's always the question hanging over, why did Roger Moore do this? Yeah, why, why is he still doing this? Does Surely. he not have something better to do? Maybe it's addictive being James Bond. I, I imagine it would be. And as it turns out, it's it's funny that Timothy Dalton didn't want to do it because of its fantastical nature. Because with this film, they really dragged it back to a much mm. simpler premise. They felt they couldn't top the outlandishness of, I guess, Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. So they pulled it right back to be a very, quite a simple story, a bit of spy espionage, a missing MacGuffin <laughs> And, um, it's definitely it's definitely back to back to basics, isn't it? It's 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 interesting mm-hmm. in that way. So, do we want to start with our one minute challenge? Yeah. And I think I went first last week, so you can go first week. This is where, of course, we put a minute on the clock and try and remember as much as we can and write down what we remembered about the movie. It's interesting in these sort of situations, Natalie, because I know I know to lift the curtain for a second, you've definitely watched this much more recently than I have because I watched this several days ago and i had to quickly look up the plot to remind myself oh yeah that's what this movie was about Stu, uh, if i can just interrupt yeah i watched this film the day that we're recording this and mm-hmm. i still had to go look up the plot yeah it's a bit like that isn't it it's definitely not the worst bond film but it is an very much in the middle of the pack and what's so weird to me about it is that there's nothing wrong with it like it's all the stuff on paper seems fine like there's intrigue and action and a bit of smuggling and and some double crossing and you know bonds going back and forth and and there's some cool set pieces and a bit of a bit of humor (laughs) it's just it's less than the sum of its parts somehow i don't i don't know what happened yeah i think it's really interesting and maybe this is the best for the summary at the end but we never podcast a traditional way anyway uh (laughs) it's definitely like a series of really good moments and action sequences and set pieces but all the intertwining stuff is quite forgettable yeah exactly yeah it's very strange but we'll talk about it and we'll see if our opinions change over the course of this podcast i guess Um, so my list the first thing that i noticed was that there's a noticeable visual style change in the films um and i i think that might be partly just the 80s it looks like we've we've upgraded film stock and cameras and all sorts of things because the film just looks different and in a way that all the previous films have looked similar in various ways it's like they just said oh it's the 80s now so so all the films look look like this now it's very weird there's a sudden visual shift I don't know whether you noticed that. I definitely noticed there's a little bit more of slight more graininess to it, even with the HD print. Mm. But I attribute that visual style change to a new director, who is John Glenn. Yeah, so, so John, John Glenn comes on at this point. Had he been a director previously? He'd been part of the crew. Yeah, so he'd been an editor and a second unit director. Right. So he worked on, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, The Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker. And then he got promoted to the rank of director, and he goes on to direct all five Bond films of the 1980s. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, I'm just looking him up now. So, he's yeah, he's got all of them, like a straight run. Yep, which is interesting given that, you know, for your eyes only – slightly more realistic and the living daylights and license to kill with timothy dalton slightly more realistic but from my memory and we'll find out 
this for sure <laughs> over the next couple of weeks because it's been a while since I've seen Octopussy and the View to a Kill, but I feel like they're <laughs> a little bit sillier. I definitely have that same memory, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Directorial style. Glenn's films contain a recurring motif in the form of a startled pigeon that makes the actor as well as the audience jump. It's especially noticeable in his five James Bond films. Variations exist. In some cases, the animal is a cat in A View to a Kill or a monkey in The Living Daylights. As editor of Moonraker, Glenn was responsible for creating the dark-taking pigeon. He's the one to blame. He's the one who did it. Oh, um, my God. Well, I was going to say, like, like if, if a pigeon is his trademark, like, why wasn't he around for that? And he was. It's him. It was him. So he's done such a good job of that on Moonraker that Albert Broccoli's gone right. You can direct a whole thing. Who looks at the pigeon double take and says, yes, you should direct an entire Bond film. In fact, the next five. But the thing is, he does have a good visual style. Like there are a couple of shots in here. And I know that when we had Nick Wiggins on and he's very good with his film visual language Mm -hmm. and I'm not that great at noticing stuff, but there were a couple of really good shots in here that I felt, you know, hopefully were his. Otherwise, if they were a second unit director, I'm proving my ignorance but there's a shot of the east german invincible bodybuilder bodyguard kgb slash biathlete dude (laughs) so at one point he's shooting in the biathlon and you see him shooting at the targets and then one of the shots is a reverse shot where the little flap of the target goes up and you see him on the other side having shot through the target it's a really cool little effect and i noted that down at the time going that's a really interesting shot that I hadn't seen before. So I feel like he's probably got interesting shot ideas, but he likes the humour of the pigeon. <laughs> I'm trying to remember if there was a pigeon in this film. During the rock climbing sequence, there's a quite a pivotal moment with the pigeon that nearly gives Bond away. Of course there is. Yeah. Yes. I thought it was a dove for some reason. Or a dove. Like, it might have been a dove. But I a dove's are a type for pigeon? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. I'm not an ornithologist, Natalie. We should ask James Bond. who James wrote Bond would know. The ornithologist <laughs> who Fleming named the character after, which is a really good in-joke if you if you are aware of that. Um, that, was really good. that was a good I'm very pleased with that. Yes. So, yeah, so he, he has an interesting visual style, and I think he's probably quite an effective director and certainly knows his subject matter. But, yeah, what a thing. Yes. <laughs> That's it. That pigeon, you're right, just jumps out and kind of almost scuppers Bond's climb up Meteora to the monastery. Again, just to blow my own trumpet, I've been there. Oh, really? That's a very cool spot. Like, did you go there knowing that it was a Bond location? I did not. I think it's because For Your Eyes Only is not one of my (laughs) favourites. It's not one I see very much. And I'd totally forgotten. And I went to Meteora with uh, Greg from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast. And we had been in the Greek islands and we were going back to Athens and we had five days in Athens, but we'd already been in Athens for about three days before we went into the islands. So we were pondering what to do. And the um, the guide uh, that we had who kind of co-accompanied these these trips, it was kind of like an intrepid sort of trip where you have a guide, but they don't really tell you what to do. It's not like Kentucky. I just want to be clear. I've never taken a Kentucky tour <laughs> because they just look awful. But she said, oh, I want to go up to Meteora. Have you thought of going there? And we said, no idea what it is. And so she told us about it because this was pre-smartphones or just as smartphones were coming in. But she said, it's monasteries, all built on these incredible rock formations, 
Right. I, I, I don't know the exact geological term, but there may be volcanic plugs or something. I think they're bigger than that, but maybe glaciers. I think maybe glaciers went through a valley and left lots of rock behind these big outcrops. I th- I'm pretty sure it's glaciers. If you just Google meteora, M-E-T-E-O-R-A, you will see them and they're incredible. And so we sort of left our big bags in Athens and took a train up to tell Kalanaka. We took a train up to the small village <laughs> at the base of Meteora. And then we just spent small like village three with days. A long name. Yes, we just spent three days climbing up to these monasteries and going and visiting them. And some you can go in, some you can't. Um, being a woman, I had to wear like a sarong around my waist because, of course, I was, you know, walking around in jeans. And you're not allowed to wear trousers if you're a woman in the in the monastery. So I had to put on a sarong to look like a skirt. Yeah, they're fascinating places and some of them are still operating as they always did. So when I saw them flash up on screen for James Bond, I went, I've seen those. I was very impressed with myself for making that decision many years ago. Very good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's um, atmospheric and they are they did such a good job of conveying the sheerness of the sides yes yeah, of yeah. the rock like that's why they built up there because they were impenetrable you know and you had to get winched up and they could just close themselves off and i think colombo makes the point in this film that this is where we used to hide from the germans and i think that's you know certainly what they were used for during the war because you can't I suppose you could fly over them in a plane, but in terms of an attack from the ground, they're basically like the Eerie from Game of Thrones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you pull up the rope and, and you're, you're yeah. impenetrable. And you know what that means is the only person who can penetrate them is Bronn. Is Bond with his magical penis. No, 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 no. Bronn with his ten good men and he'll impenetrate the bitch. I like that. Bronn. Something Bronn. <laughs> But anyway, sorry, back to your list. No, that's all right. Well, I did have rock cl- the rock climb on my list, so we can talk about that if you like. It's a really cool sequence and very tense. And so much longer than I think you would have these days. Yeah, absolutely. And he re- you really go through all the stages of, of him. It, it reminds me, now that I think about it, a little bit of the underwater sequences in Thunderball, you know, in the sense that you go through every single stage of Bond, like hammering in the in the, in the spikes and threading the rope and then moving to the next bit. Yeah. And then you know, he gets found out. There's a couple of fake outs. There's that, that thing with the pigeon. And then the guy realizes that he's climbing up. So he climbs down and there's like, yeah. he's knocking out some of the things. It's actually really tense. In a yep. way that action scenes are not these days. Like, action scenes can still be tense, but they need to be way more high stakes than this. This is literally the stakes are he's knocking out steel pegs from a from a mountainside. But the stake is Bond's going to fall to his death. So it's incredibly mm-hmm. tense. It's actually really, really well done. And they have the, the, the drops. He drops down suddenly. The stuntman who performed that drop was the same guy who did the parachute jump from The Spy Who Loved Me, Rick Sylvester. Fantastic. That guy's awesome. Yeah. He's done a lot of cool stuff. He's really worked hard. (laughs) So Roger Moore said he had a great fear of heights and to do the climbing in Greece, he resorted to moderate drinking to calm his nerves. Wait, why would you drink if you've got to climb? Yeah, that that seems uh, ill-advised at best. But I wouldn't have thought they'd have him doing any of that, but maybe he had to 
he uh-huh. might have even because there's some close-up shots on the side yeah. of the mountain where he sort yeah. of has to sort of be there and i'm sure he had to get, sort of get down in a harness and, and be sort of dangling off the side a bit yeah um, which which look i don't blame him i'm terrible with heights myself and looking at that sequence made me physically ill i was like oh god <laughs> like, yeah, it's just oh Filmed really well, although there are a couple of moments where I felt like it might have been an Adam West Batman style reverse shot or angled shot. Like when when he made it look a bit steeper than it actually is. No, well, or or just having Roger Moore is like doing something on a horizontal and then they flip the footage so it looks vertical. When when the guy sort of kicks him off, he's almost at the top and the guy comes down and sort of kicks him down and that's when he does the first big fall. He's kind of rolling over and it looks a bit like he's just on a sound stage and they've angled the footage a bit. That's me being picky. <laughs> So, yes, uh, Rick Sylvester undertook the stunt of Bond falling off the side of the cliff. It was dangerous since the sudden rope jerk at the bottom could be fatal. Special effects supervisor Derek Metting, so he's the guy who did all of the lasers for Moonraker, he developed a system that would dampen the stop, but Sylvester recalled that this, his nerves nearly got the better of him. He should have asked for some of Roger Moore's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, should have had a couple of belts or whatever Moore was having. So the quote from Rick Sylvester is, from where we were shooting, you could see the local cemetery and the box to stop my fall looked like a casket you didn't need to be an english major to connect the dots but the stunt went off without a problem fair enough that's good to hear because as we've said before this series has a terrible track record Oh, yeah. performers getting injured in horrible ways yeah well is this the right point to mention that someone died on this one? <laughs> oh god no i didn't i didn't even know that that's insane uh, yeah so wow so what happened in February 1981, on the final day of filming the bobsled chase, is it bobsled or bobsleigh? Because it's written here as bobsleigh, as in like Santa riding on a sleigh. I personally go by the Cool Runnings uh, uh, rule, uh, which is bobsled. All I ever learned about bobsledding was from Cool Runnings. <laughs> That's it, exactly. <laughs> Feel the rhythm. Feel the rhyme. Something, something. It's, it's bobsled, bobsled time. time. Uh, it was John Candy, wasn't it, too? It was. I think he's the last movie. He was a great dude. He was very funny. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, one of the stuntmen driving a sleigh, sled, 23-year-old Paolo Rigon was killed when he became trapped under the bob. The incident, which took place one week after the FIBT World Championships 1981, where USA won bobsled driver James Morgan was killed in a crash during the four-man sled competition, resulted in the shortening of the track for future FIBT events. I assume that's like an international federation of bobsledding something. But, yeah, so someone someone a week earlier had been killed during competition and then filming started for Bond and a stunt driver got killed. Jesus. But, I mean, like, there wasn't even – was there a bobsled crash? Or not on film, but certainly no. they, they crashed it. In the film, he became trapped under the bob, which I assume is the bobsled. Right. I assume there wasn't a guy there called Bob. Uh, <laughs> just a big guy. Just a really big guy. And, yeah, so that's all they kind of mention about it. It's, it's not really got a lot of uh, entry here on the Wikipedia page. Right, okay. Um, poor young stunt driver got trapped, and I guess that was it. Fair enough. Okay, well, that sucks. Yeah. <laughs> that's not good. These Wait, movies have a terrible track record. Raise a glass to Paolo Rigon. <laughs> I wonder if there is, like, a museum to stunt uh, stunt men and women. If there is, isn't there should be they don't get oscars this is the terrible thing we've um, talked about this before i'm sure yeah. it's criminal 
it's, that it's they insane. Don't. Especially given like so, some of the stunts. Like I mean, it's it's becoming far more impressive when people actually do stunts now because like so much can be done with CGI that when someone actually does put themselves in harm's way like that, it's even more impressive somehow. It's 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 notable. But yeah, that's yeah. Anyway, we're, we're way off track in that regard. Well, but it's really interesting. Like I wonder if that is something as they that you know because I think they're looking at having to rejig the Oscars anyway, given nobody really likes to watch them anymore and they never <laughs> have posts because everyone they choose is problematic and nobody likes them and you know maybe maybe they should start by putting in the stuntman category, throwing that up front. Well, I guess then everyone would turn off. Okay, halfway through, <laughs> put in some stuntmen and women action because there's so many, so many good ones. There really is, and they they do incredible work. I, I don't know whether you've seen that. Um, there's a YouTube channel called uh, CGI Artists React. It's by a, a CGI channel called Corridor Crew, and they're fantastic. They split their their channel between looking at good and bad CGI and like you know some really good CGI and then also like laughably bad CGI. But then they also, because they work in the film industry, they have access to all these really cool stunt people who've worked on Hollywood blockbusters. And so they do stunt men and stunt women react to cool oh, wow. and bad stunts. And it's really awesome, like seeing them break down some like like fight scenes and like really interesting stunts and things that you wouldn't think are terribly bad are actually like some of the worst stunts that you can that you can do as a performer. You know, it's amazing. Like like there's a there's a shot in the Daredevil TV series that is completely unremarkable, and the stunt guy was like, yeah, that's the worst stunt. I've ever done in my life because wow. it was like cold and a straight drop from like a rooftop onto concrete and he had to do it like 10 times and it was just every time in the freezing cold just hitting concrete again and again and again well, he's well, like that's honestly, the worst thing I've ever done and I've jumped off buildings like you know it's like that's the worst thing he's ever done just dropping onto his feet no no like dropping and then having to like like roll and, and do the do the, the action movie thing I, I think he actually like the, the way he was dropping he sort of he has to land like full body on his arms and face and stuff and the the way that the shot was done that the stunt was really elaborate but they actually cut it in half so a lot of the the elaborateness of it that took a long time to set up is just gone. They, they didn't end up using it. That's the worst thing he's ever done, he said. <laughs> I'm like, that, that's insane. And like something that looks so easy for a stunt person. It, it's just a fall. And he's like, that's the worst stunt I've ever done. I, I was bruised and beaten up afterwards. Like, it was just, yeah, crazy. But how horrible would it be to have you know, this amazing stunt that you literally put your body on the line for and then they go, ah, eh, we're not going to use the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they just chop out the the impressive bit and so it just looks like a very short fall. <laughs> it's actually a very long, complicated fall. <laughs> Although there is a great stunt in the ski chase, which we can talk a bit about more, I suppose, where the stuntman acting as Bond kind of sails over the top and does this awesome midair 360 rotation. Yes. And starts going backwards. Yeah, yeah, that was fantastic. So, so good. But I do, you know, just before we get back to your list, I do like the way that the difference between Roger Moore's physicality and the stuntman's physicality oh, in yes. this film, yeah. the gap is growing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to the point where in the ski stuff where he's skiing with, um, we'll get to her, B.B. Dahl, the figure skater, it, it looks oh, like yes. he literally walks into place and kind of stands there. Well, there's a shot. <laughs> there's a shot. Uh, yeah, I guess we're talking about it. Like there's There's a shot where... She's skiing because she could ski, but Roger Moore is much closer to the camera. And I realized looking at the shot, oh my God, he's on like a tray. He's on like a tray. <laughs> like they've got him wiggling back and forth just on like a, a track bed on the snow so that he's not actually skiing, but she is. Well, he did ski in Live and Let Die. He did do the close up shots 
where he was actually skiing. No, sorry, I'm thinking of George Lazenby. You're thinking oh. of George Lazenby. No, no, in, in um, The Spy Who Loved Me, there are some very notorious insert shots in that yes. ski shot opening, but he did none of that skiing. <laughs> yes. No, 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 you're right. I'm thinking, I'm getting all the ski chases confused, and I'm thinking George There's been Lazenby. a few at this point. And they're all filmed by the same guy, Wally Bognor, yeah. who was promoted to, I think, like the second unit director or something like that for this film. So his name is on the opening credits now, but he filmed on Her Majesty's Secret Service and The Spy Who Loved Me, and he's back here and he wanted to make this one even better. And it's definitely an excellent ski chase. Like, it's really very good. This definitely felt like as far as you can push it. I don't know I don't know how much further you can push a ski chase. I think Pierce Brosnan does one at one point, I think, in The World Is Not Enough. And has Daniel uh, Craig... Well, Daniel Craig does something in The Snow Inspector. There's definitely a, a Majesty's Secret Service-esque chase through the snow inspector. I wonder how that'll play, actually, when we get to it. That's, in, that's interesting to think about. What new thing can you bring to a ski chase? Yeah, box. exactly. Um, I think in, I think in that one that he's in a car and it's going down the the snow, which seems about right for where we're at with I action have... movies in when that movie came out. Well, speaking of cars, we can get to that too because there's a great car. But yes, go back to your list. Sorry, yes. So we, we mentioned The Rock Climb. Uh, I wrote down uh, Moore at his most in this movie. I feel like Roger Moore, this is probably peak Roger Moore. He's turned a corner. I think he was at his best in The Spy Who Loved Me. Yes. I think this movie epitomizes everything that is cliched, but also that I love about Roger Moore's portrayal of Bond because he is, he is suave as hell throughout this entire movie mm. and he's just regarding everyone with a slightly cocked eyebrow the entire time you know it's just, it's just yeah. everything is this, just this slight whimsical detachment from the events that are happening in front of him and also he has an opportunity to be a sexual predator and doesn't do it well yeah look that is also on my list we could talk about that if you like sure. <laughs> So the, the specific thing that I wrote on my list was, oh, great, Bond does Lolita, and then a frowny face. Um, but he doesn't. Yeah, exactly right. And I, I, you want to talk about a tense scene. I was talking about how the rock climb was tense. I was probably even more tense going, oh, James, please don't sleep with the underage woman. Like, just sort of like, I genuinely couldn't remember how they played this. Like, because I, I, I couldn't get a strong handle on how old BB was supposed to be. Like, yeah. I think she's supposed to be like a teenager, but obviously I... the, the actress who's playing her is in her 20s. And she seems like she might be like slightly older, but obviously like not. Obviously, it's she's meant to be like a teenager. So she was an actual figure skater and she was about 23 at the time. But I think she looked a lot younger. And obviously, figure skaters tend to be quite petite and they put her in kind of the blonde and, you know, big ponytail and stuff. So and they had her act younger and it's played comedy and it's kind of kind of uncomfortable in 2020 to, to watch those <laughs> scenes even even with even with roger moore being a perfect gentleman it definitely is is a bit uncomfortable it is an odd character for them to choose because normally that female character in the film is because she's to me her age is kind of 16 to 18 Somewhere yeah, I, I, I was I was thinking like 16, 17 odd. I figure it was enough for them to go, oh, she's 18. You know, that's still young enough to be sort of have a guardian and be trying to win the end. Is it, is it though? Like, like and that, that's the thing that really kind of weirded me out was because her thing then is that, what is his name? Um, Julian Glover's character. Yeah, yeah, Christatos. When he said, oh, that, that is my protege, I'm like, oh, God, no. Like, 
please don't do this. It's very clear that he keeps a pretty blonde figure skater, a very young pretty blonde figure skater around. Like that he's training up and it's not, oh, it's just, it's just not, it, all of it is very bad, Natalie. All of it's very bad. <laughs> and then at the end, at the end, it's played for laughs and it's a good thing that Columbo, she's like tending to Columbo and she's like, I've got a new benefactor. And he gives the seediest wink I've ever seen in my life. Like you want to talk about like Tony Abbott giving the seedy wink during the, the radio interview. This is like 10 Tony Abbott's. It is the seediest wink you've ever seen in your life. So, yes, what I was saying is normally that character who's kind of close to the bad guy is the one who gets killed. So if you think of Maud Adams' character, Andrea Anders with Scaramanga or the helicopter pilot for Hugo Drax, it's like the female assistant slash lover to the villain is the one who kind of gets seduced by Bond and then dies bb doll which i realized watching it i went oh it's baby doll <laughs> i'd never thought of that before because i couldn't quite work out what is bb doll how is that an innuendo but uh, baby doll so she is the innocent and is too innocent for them to have killed off well very very specifically bond doesn't have sex with her which is usually the mark of doom true yeah it's like being a virgin in horror movies or what yeah, exactly exactly yeah. that there's a moral component to it where if you've transgressed you're punished on screen and she she remains virginal so she's okay but she's not a virgin as she points out no, as she points out <laughs> because just... that makes it okay natalie no, it doesn't – I'm not saying it makes it a case. No, 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 I'm not saying you are. I'm saying the film is. But she's got agency. Like, she walks in and goes, I like you and I want to sleep with you and I'll do anything for you. And he's the sensible adult going – older man going, thanks but no thanks. Especially because he looks 51 yes. in this movie. Yes. And she yes. looks about 20 and she's playing younger and none of it's good. And you can you can definitely say that some women have a thing for older men. There's like a father figure kind of thing there, sure. And she's, funnily enough, Melina Havelock, who's the main Bond girl, Mm. Carol Bouquet, I don't know how old she was. I can look it up, but she's not. She was only, I did look this up. I was going to mention this. Um, She's only two years older than the actress who played BB. (laughs) They're both in their early to mid-20s. So it's not any better. She looks slightly older. They play her older than BB, which makes it okay. I mean, it's still pretty, I mean, it's a big age gap in terms of sheer, like, Roger Moore to uh, Carol Bouquet. For sure. But it's not quite as egregious as, you know, if they had gone with BB Dahl. And so what they do to bring in an older woman to counter Roger Moore, but to be the person who then dies because they sleep with him, they bring in Cassandra Harris, an actress like Countess Liesl von Schraff or whatever it is. (laughs) And do you know who she happened to be married to in real life at the time? I actually found this out in a random a random Wikipedia hole just before we started um, recording, but but please tell everyone because it's amazing. So she was married to a little guy called Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan, who was on set apparently visiting her many times. Famously so, they actually had lunch with Albert Broccoli and because Pierce Brosnan was uh, had got into that uh, TV show Remington Steel in America. Mm. So he was Irish and he met and married Cassandra in London. She was a couple of years older than him. 
she got the Bond role and then after that he got the Remington Steel role or around the same time. I can't quite remember. But anyway, Albert Broccoli really liked him and actually thought, oh, if he's an actor and if he's decent at acting, I would cast him as Bond. And she was a big proponent of him becoming Bond. And there was so much rumour about it that it was actually Remington Steel got cancelled in like 1985 and there was so much rumour about Pierce Brosnan taking over from Roger Moore that they renewed the show because like all of a sudden it got popular again because people thought he was like James Bond. Yeah, so he- yeah, yeah. The very thing that that was going to mean he was free to be Bond meant that he wasn't free to be Bond. Yeah, and so because he was con- contracted to it, he had to go back and do the other series, and so they cast Timothy Dalton. But then sadly what happened was Cassandra Harris got very ill with ovarian cancer and died, I, th- I think, in 1990 or 1991. But to the end, she was very much, you know, you should be James Bond, you should be James Bond. And then in 1994, he was cast. So, oh, really, yeah, really bittersweet story that she was the Bond girl first. Yeah, uh, absolutely. She was Australian as well. Yes, yes, I found that out. Yeah, that, that's that's lovely. Uh, it, it's really interesting how long Pierce Brosnan was associated with the James Bond series before he actually got to be Bond. I mean, I guess we can talk yeah. about that when we get to Brosnan's. But yes. yeah, no, it's <laughs> just something to put a pin in for later. So, yes, uh, where were you up to? Uh, so, yeah, so um, the thing that started us on that tangent was uh, more it is most. He's he's being the most Roger Mori Bond that I've seen so far. Um, <laughs> so the next thing, it's an interesting thing in this movie, and we were talking about it earlier, where there's lots of cool stuff in it, but it doesn't really have a good villain. Or, or actually, you know, I'll, I'll preface that because the villain, we think it's it's Columbo, and then it turns out it's Christados, which is actually a really cool reveal. It's but a the really henchman, cool reveal, yeah, and it's yeah. not been done before in Bond films. No, and it actually caught me by surprise because I, it's been a long time since I've seen this movie. I saw this movie a, lo- a long time ago, a couple of times, and I haven't seen it since. So it actually caught me by surprise. I was like, oh, okay, that's an interesting little twist. And suddenly the mm. guy that you were chasing is actually going to turn around and you're going to help him. It's going to be a Columbo becomes uh, the, the, the ally character who helps out and has, has his own henchmen and stuff. But what I was going to say was that the henchmen in this kind of crap. The specific note that I wrote was that blonde guy is no Jaws. Right? <laughs> and, very, and very few people are Jaws. Like, let's Hang be on. clear. But he does have abs of steel. He certainly does. You know, and he's, he's a very well-built man, but he has the personality of a well-built man. Um, so... <laughs> That's fair to say. He's he's not particularly charismatic. No. And, you know, I don't want to reflect badly on East German people uh, from the 1980s as a whole, but, yeah, it's not doing them any favours. <laughs> oh, uh, dear. Um, the next thing I had on my list was uh, I had Melina. Melina is actually uh, pretty great as a Bond yeah. girl. Carol Bouquet is stunning, absolutely beautiful, um, and is also, like, the character is that she's playing is actually really cool. She has agency, she has goals that she wants to achieve, and Bond helps her achieve them. There's relatively little paternalistic crap where he's like, go and sit this one out. Yeah. You know, like, she's involved in most of it. Uh, it's good. It's really good. I like yeah. it. What, what did you think? I really like her, and I, I was reading a lot of the contemporary criticism uh, at the time, and a lot of people found the movie a bit forgettable or, you know, <laughs> <laughs> too overtaken by the action series and some people actually didn't like her that much they thought she was a bit passable she's not a huge presence in the movie but i think her character is quite good compared to some of the other bond girls we've seen so far i think she's a really good actor and i think she conveys that that you know what they were going for with the whole i'm half greek we like electra we 
take revenge for the murder of yeah, Alice. She, she's like coldly working her way up the chain of, of revenge. Yeah, and she's not it's not over exaggerated, it's not overplayed. She's just methodical and she also says to Bond, How can I help? which I think is really interesting. So when they hmm. they look for what her father was investigating. She's like, well, how can I help? What can I do? And so they have the the underwater mission uh, because of that. So she's very capable. And what I really like is the relationship with Bond where he says to her that line, the Chinese have a saying, if you plan for revenge, you must first dig two graves. And I don't know if that's an actual Chinese saying. I hope it is because it's really good. Like it's a really. It's a great, it's a great uh, little bit of pot wisdom. It's a lovely little tagline and it helped convey a relationship between the two of them where, you know, this is a guy who's a international spy and assassin. He thinks nothing of destroying people who've hurt his loved ones and we should get to the opening uh, pre-credit sequence. Yeah, well, and- yes, I was going to say that, that's the, the last item on my list. <laughs> but it's like he doesn't want her to go down that path because he knows what's down there. He's in that world, but she still has a chance to you know, not have that hanging over her head. That's really interesting because I had thought that the opening sequence, the, the, the cold open, was unrelated to the plot, but I suddenly realised that it's actually thematically tied in in, in, a, in, in in an interesting way. Well, that's generous of you because I don't think it was supposed to be. Really. I don't think it was supposed to be. I think they, they stumbled ass backwards into that, but I just realised you could actually draw a line there, which is interesting. Yeah, I think just the idea and, I mean, look, you could argue that, oh, he wants the, you know, woman to stay pure and but men can kill each other. You could argue that sort of thing. It's like, don't let the woman become a killer. But I honestly think he does have a genuine affection for her. It's not just a, oh, you're a hot, sexy bird. I think he, he feels a certain amount of protective love towards her, if that makes sense. Like when he first meets her in the car and she says, they killed my parents, he's like, oh, the Havelocks, I'm sorry. He has a genuine moment of, oh, I know who you are, and mm. that would have been horrible. And also, Bond is an orphan. Well, do we know that at this stage, though? Or I don't know if we do, but I know now that we do. <laughs> and, so I, and as I, such, you can retroactively go back I, and insert pathos into that scene. Yeah, in my own head, I can, and I did. So, <laughs> yeah. Natalie, far be it from me to tell you how to watch these movies. <laughs> I think that was probably quite smart because if they'd gone straight for, oh, you're really hot and sexy, which of course she is, but she's kind of more ethereally beautiful, I think, than, you know, super hot like Anya Amasova or something. I think that having that element of protective sexy times plays better than if it had just been, hey, yeah, you're really hot. (laughs) (laughs) Good use of words. Excellent way to explain. I, 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 I understood what you were saying. I, I totally get it. Yeah, yeah. It's a very good point. They obviously took their time to build up that relationship a bit, which is more than more than some Bond movies do, which is good. And then obviously the, the very last uh, item on my list, uh, I started with the start of the movie, uh, which is uh, Wheelchair in the Smokestack, which I remember as a kid being in an earlier film. I was, I swear that it was in like, you know, The Spy Who Loved Me or something that he, he finally took revenge on, or even like Live and Let Die or something. Nope. Um, but nope, they they waited a long time to finally close this loop. So so I I know I'm aware of of the backstory briefly, like just that this was them basically putting a line under the character of Blofeld, wasn't it? Because they don't refer to him as Blofeld; he's wheelchair villain. <laughs> it, it was essentially. 
essentially the cinematic equivalent of two middle fingers up. <laughs> yes. To our old friend Kevin McClory, and we bring Thunderball all the way back because, of course, he was still trying to get his Thunderball movie up. Ah, oh, that movie. And- <laughs> it's ruined so many things. <laughs> Blofeld is introduced in Thunderball, or that character. He owns the rights to Spectre, but there was some dispute, like Eon disputed whether he had the rights to Blofeld. But as it was, there was all sorts of legal drama happening. So this was a way of doing two things, one (laughs) obviously being the screw you, Kevin McClory, we're literally going to throw your villain into a smokestack. (laughs) It's crazy when you think that this is the guy who killed Bond's wife and he's just, oh, you want to get off? And it's just like a comedy bit. Yeah, that Uh, they play it for laughs. Particularly when he, he spikes Blofeld's wheelchair and then Blofeld's going, oh, please, Mr. Bond, we can do a deal. We can do a deal. Like, if Blofeld <laughs> had any self-respect, he would just take it. Like, you, you know, he would just be like, okay, I'm just going to sit here until <laughs> he wouldn't beg. Yeah, no, no, exactly. I, I've, I've even heard that apparently, because he says some weird shit when he's on the, when he's begging for his life. He got, he says, I'll, I'll buy you a delicatessen. Yes. Right? And apparently yes, even does. that is a thinly veiled like F you to Kevin McClory. Apparently that's some inside joke. Oh really? Yeah, like, like I've heard that. I've I've read that previously that apparently that's like a, a thinly veiled inside joke saying like, you know, screw you, Kevin. That must have come up during like negotiations that he wanted like a delicatessen or something. I don't know. It's it's weird. It's so weird. It's so out of place. But yeah, there must be some reason for it. I have to try and dig deeper. The the sequence is just here, Wikipedia says it's um described variously as either out of place and disappointing or roaringly enjoyable. Uh, <laughs> it's a really divided viewers and critics. Well, it has it has some very cool helicopter stunts. It goes into that factory thing and like it's doing twi- loop the loops and stuff. It's really cool. Like, like the there's factory, some lo- a lot of good helicopter flying. Yeah, the factory shot where it goes into the factory that was all done with um, force perspective. Oh, okay, that's cool. They created like a small factory and put it near the camera. <laughs> And then had the helicopter like fly behind it because they thought the helicopter would too be be too big to be in the factory, so they faked it that way. Like again, just good old fashioned cinema force perspective. Yeah, that's it, exactly. You can't fault them for that. But just to say, the second thing that that sequence was supposed to do was introduce a new Bond, if they indeed went for a new Bond. Right, and so that would have been like this Bond is the one who finally got rid of Blofeld. <laughs> so you would have seen. You know, Bond come into the cemetery, lay flowers at Tracy's grave, look sad, have the, you know, priest come out saying, Mr. Bond, Mr. Bond. So it would connect that Bond and you go, oh, okay, it's Bond. It's still in this timeline. It's still the Bond who, you know, the George. Which Lashley at this point, get. at this point is pretty nuts that, that it's still like, they're still like, it's the same Bond. This is the same Bond that was active in the 60s and we're at, we're at 1981 at this point. Well, you know. And, I mean, like, looking at Roger Moore, you can believe it. Don't be ageist. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, this this is the point where the, the timeline starts getting very stretched. Yes. Uh, and it's, it's a little bit nebulous as to when and where Bond was active. Yep. It's something that's going to become more and more of an issue, and and the the films will either ignore it or address it in various ways. And it's really interesting how they how they do. But this this one is very much completely like, yep, he's he he had a wife who was who was murdered, 
And you saw that, and it happened in the 60s. And it's 1981 now, and he's still somehow a spy and still <laughs> working. <laughs> well, it's technically only 11, 12 years. Sure, well, but, like, he was he was a middle-aged man in the 60s. Like, that was the... I see middle-aged as being 50, you see. So Okay, well, fair enough, fair enough. But, I mean, you know, he was certainly in his late 30s, early 40s in the 60s. And he's, he's definitely, like, Roger Moore is playing him as a 51-year-old man. <laughs> yeah, true. Okay. It's fair. You can have that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's my list. Uh, well, what did you have on your list? I have a lot more things, but I, right. thought, I thought that I should say, because I don't think I have given a brief overview of the plot, <laughs> which I seem to forget. We always, we always forget to do that before we get to the list. <laughs> <laughs> so just to recap the plot... Bond is, you know, forgetting the standalone, essentially, pre-credit sequence. There's a British spy ship disguised as a fishing vessel in the Ionian Sea near Greece. It is hit by a mine accident or not, and it sinks. Everyone on board seems to go down with the ship, but it has on it the ATAC machine, which is an acronym for anti-terror art cabal. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that is that is it's the, it's the MacGuffin machine yes it's the automatic targeting attack communicator it is a system used by the ministry of defense to communicate with and coordinate the royal navy's fleet of polaris submarines because you've got to put all your eggs into one basket absolutely yes. when it comes to military defense you've <laughs> got to have one system that essentially looks like a mini typewriter yeah it's <laughs> like easily carried by a by a single man. Not a typewriter, like an early 1980s Casio-based word processor. <laughs> and it is that one device that you have to get handcuffed to for your shift on the spy ship that's discussed. Anyway, point is this very important bit of kit is underneath the ocean and the idea that it falls into foreign hands, foreign interests is not good, so James Bond gets put on the case. Oh, sorry. Before James Bond is put on the case, the Havelocks, so Molina's parents, the father is a marine archaeologist, they are contracted to secretly go and salvage this ATAC. And before they can get it, Molina is returned home and the same seaplane that delivers her home then assassinates her parents. So she wants revenge on the people who killed her parents. Meanwhile, Bond has to go and track down this ATAC machine. And their stories collide. <laughs> and, yes, so there's all sorts of little villains and henchmen and interlocking. But, yes, the main villain is Christatos, who starts off kind of as Bond's friend. And as we said earlier, he sets up Columbo, played by Topol. Totally forgotten that he was in a Bond film. Musical <laughs> theatre star. I think probably he, he was called like Israel's most famous actor from the 60s to the 90s. <laughs> I'm fairly sure Gal Gadot has taken that uh, <laughs> that crown at this point. Oh, God, and how. Columbo is set up as the villain, but actually is a good guy who used to work with Christatos during the war, but then he was betrayed. So he kind of sets Columbo up as the villain and mm. Bond realizes that he's actually the good guy and helps bond and it's a lovely switch yeah so that's the basic plot there's a MacGuffin. bond needs to get it and oh yes and russia is going to buy it so we see general gogol again yes yes we, I, I didn't have that on my list but i was i was quite happy to see him again i like that he's sort of 
a recurring character who just sort of shows up that he and Bond have that uh, very cool sort of not not mutual respect, but just sort of like, oh, hey, hey, how you going? Sort of thing. It's very yeah. good. Although he doesn't speak in the scene with Bond and he was in The Spy Who Loved Me in the same room as Bond. You'd think he might go, oh, how you been doing? And Bond might say, how's Anya Amasova? She's still alive. <laughs> is, she, is she okay? I haven't seen. She doesn't return my calls. Yes. Get her to send me a message on my watch, which has a Dymo labeler in it. <laughs> Call back. Uh, <laughs> so we'll get to my list because I have a bunch of stuff. Oh, boy. So, again, I just said gritty reboot because this was the, the idea that they would take things back from the Moonraker outer space style it is pretty crazy though that this is what constituted a gritty reboot of the bond franchise in 1981 i'm using that phrase as we would understand it to mean today oh sure yeah yeah but i mean it's just it's just incredible to think what back to basics look like at this point yes uh i also had um roger moore looking older distinguished distinguished it particularly stands out when he's against Carol Bouquet, and particularly oh, yeah. against Bibi Dahl. Oh, God, he looks he looks so old. He looks like her grandfather. <laughs> it's genuinely upsetting. The fact that <laughs> you're so uh, uh, you're so much funny about this stuff that I am. I'm like, yeah, it's not. It doesn't look good. But to me, she just comes across as like a I'm a teenage girl who's got a thing for old men, and he does the right thing by not you know jumping yeah, into. Actually, I, I was like, bless you, Roger Moore. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for doing this. Yes. Because <laughs> he says he gets, put your clothes on and I'll buy you an ice cream. Like, yeah, I know. You know, that's what you tell a kid. I'll yeah. buy you an ice cream. So it's very clear that he sees that she's just got a bit of a schoolgirl crush, as you might say. Yes. So Topol, I mentioned him. Oh, I said, oh, no, there are underwater scenes, WWST, which is what will Stu think? <laughs> Well, actually, I was worried too, Natalie. I was worried too because I saw that there was a lot of uh, scuba action. I was like, oh, no, are we going to – what's going to happen here? Is this going to be another Thunderball? But it wasn't. They managed to shoot these scenes in a way that wasn't completely interminable, and I actually quite liked it. And especially, like, that climactic fight inside uh, the St. George's was actually quite tense. Again, like, like this movie is directed – pretty well yeah and i did love that the they're surprised because they're in like yellow dive suits and helmets mm. and they are burst in on by <laughs> danger will robinson <laughs> <laughs> the most impractical bulky dive suit i've ever seen in a movie it's crazy i don't know what that robot is from lost in space but it's like that cross with yeah. the stay path marshmallow man it's like this is big <laughs> And I guess a touch of Marvin, no, Paranoid Android? Is it Marvin? Yeah, Marvin the Paranoid Android, Android, yeah. From Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the film version anyway, where he's like a big white head thing voiced by Alan Rickman, which is excellent. (laughs) I'm sure Dan Beeston from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast is shaking his head because I'm probably, (laughs) you know, quoting the movie, which he, I assume, hates because I think he's that type of Hitchhiker's Geek. He'll be ropeable. To, To be fair, so am I. I don't like that movie very much, but anyway. Oh, really? Are yeah, you... I've never liked it very much. I think they, they got a lot wrong, but anyway. But, like, Sam Rockwell's in it. He's always good, isn't he? Sam Rockwell's good. I don't, I don't hate Sam Rockwell. And I think uh, Arthur Dent in that movie is amazing. Uh, it's a perfect casting. Mm. of um, Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman, of course, yeah. Uh, Bilbo Baggins himself. Uh, yeah, no, he, he, um, he was good casting. It was amazing casting. Uh, but it just sort of... I don't know. Something about that movie is a bit doesn't quite capture the spirit of the books. Anyway, that's for a different <laughs> podcast. 
we'll get Dan in. Just really have it out. Yeah, just work work through some issues. <laughs> work through some nearly twenty year old issues. <laughs> yeah, that's because that's the movie, isn't it? Yeah. When was the mid two thousands? I think. It was mid two thousands. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't. Um. Yeah, probably then. Anyway. Anyway, <laughs> we can move on. Diversions. Dun dun dun. Um. So yes, I did like that robot, and I liked the little bit of realism where Bond is doing the calculations on what kind of mix of air they'd need for underneath the water, and how they'll only have eight minutes. Like, I love little technical stuff like that yeah. in films. You definitely get the sense that like everyone involved had done some scuba diving, and therefore it was important for them to get it right. It was, yes. They're all they're all scuba diving nerds, basically. They're like, I, no, we've got to, we've got to portray this accurately. Yeah, or maybe a previous film had been a bit cavalier and there'd been complaints, so they weren't. Well, we have got to be pedantic about the scuba stuff because. <laughs> Is that what people are watching? The really will... accurate scuba stuff. <laughs> so I wrote the ski chase, obviously, which we can talk more about. But I, I just love the East German. He's just such a like a cardboard cutout of a Bond henchman. Yeah. He reminds me a lot of Stamper, who comes up in Tomorrow Never Dies. We just have like a big, muscly German. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's just um, a heavy. He doesn't have a gimmick. He's just a big guy who's going to beat the crap out. There was another German blonde guy who was in You Only Live Twice with Blofeld. Oh, yes. Like yeah, the, yeah, that's right. Yeah, sort of in the middle there. It's just like every few films we have a... A big blonde German guy. <laughs> blonde German henchman. But, yes, his name was Hans Wolf and I just enjoy that as a henchman name. <laughs> Funnily enough, his name is that translates to John because Hans is German for John, so it's like John Wolf, which is kind of close to like John Snow who has a white wolf. <laughs> um, we've got there, people. We've, we've found the connection. Oh, no, no, no. Stu, I'm bringing it to the connection. Oh, I was going to say, segue. yeah, I, I just realised what you were doing. This is the segue to end all segues because... <laughs> This film has not one, but two Game of Thrones cast members. Well, of course it does. It? Yeah, I always forget about Julian Glover, but yes, absolutely yeah, it does. I forgot too. I was looking it up and went, oh my God, he's Grandmaster Pycelle. They did a really good makeup job on him, but also I suppose he was a lot older. He was much older. They made him look very decrepit for the role, but yes. Yes. But whereas Charles Dance, I was like, oh my God, that's Tywin Lannister. But yeah, hmm. yes, and that, that's the thing. So, so Charles Dance, Tywin Lannister, is in this as a henchman. As a henchman, just a random henchman. He gets shot by a crossbow though, so that's pretty cool. That's true. He, he's in that sequence where they're they're chasing Bond. He's part of that. He's and the counter shares some meaning, his meaningful looks. Well, he's in the ski chase, and then he's in the chase on the beach with Bond and um, Pierce Brosnan's wife. Yeah. <laughs> Can't remember Countess. <laughs> Countess Liesel, who's actually from Liverpool, um, she's <laughs> pretending to be a countess. I don't understand her character. I don't get it. I feel like she was kind of a callback to Tracy. Was she? Well, in the sense of she's a countess who's not really – she's sort of playing at being a countess, but is actually a bit unhappy. But was she unhappy? Because, like, it, it's weird because it seems like she's, like, double-crossed – Columbo, because she works for Columbo, doesn't she? Yeah, and he he told her to go and find out information on this guy, Bond. Yeah. So she does, and that entails sleeping with him. You know, fair enough. Well, as you do, I mean, that's part of the course in these movies. But I mean, like, like it, it seems as if Bond's magic penis has done its work again. Um, <laughs> except, like, it turns out that like 
Columbo's the good guy. So it's it's weird. It's just a weird. I I, I couldn't quite pass it, but yeah, yeah. I, maybe I'm reading. I'm dwelling too much on it, but it's very weird. <laughs> the way you say James Bond's magic penis has done its work again. It's, just, it's like <laughs> it's like it's the the wand from the fairy godmother in Cinderella. Like I talked about how the pre-credit sequence was a big fu to Kevin McClory and the whole idea yes. that we don't need your Blofeld character to the point where we're going to drop him in a smokestack. There's another great moment of, I guess, symbolism, a signifier, where Bond is driving a Lotus again, mm. another Lotus. If it's not an Esprit, it's very similar same style as The Spy Who Loved Me. Same I think kind it's, of it's meant to be the same car. Yeah. So he, the submarine car, right? The submarine car. So at one point he's trying to get away from the villa where Hector Gonzalez, who's the assassin who killed Melina Havlock's parents, he's just been paid for the job. And then he goes to take a triumphant dive into the pool and lands in the pool with an arrow in his back. And it turns out Melina had been following him, stalking him, killed him in revenge. Great. Mm -hmm. Bond realises that she's there. They run away together and he goes to get into his car, but there's a couple of goons there. They look into it. It's the Lotus. For some reason, there is a little sign saying burglar protected. Yes. Because <laughs> that's what you put on your spy car to keep a low profile. Yeah. And so a guy goes to smash in the window and it explodes. Like it blows up, which like feels it- like a Pyrrhic victory if nothing else. Well, quite. But it's also the idea behind it was to show the audiences that this is not a film that relies on gadgets. Yeah. It always grates against me when the Bond franchise pushes back against gadgets. I mean, gadgets are are right there in its DNA. And I'm always just like, come on, man. Like, just embrace it. Like, James Bond uses gadgets. It's a thing. Yeah, and he doesn't in this film. I don't think there's Hmm. any, apart from, well, the other thing I had listed under that, which was Q's Identikit. Yes, the Identikit. I I had a note about that, yeah. What a great sequence. Identigraph, Identi-something. And it's so lame. 3D visual Identigraph. It's so lame, (laughs) Stu. It's so lame. It's the lamest thing ever. And the idea that in 1981 that a computer image sort of straight out of Tron um, (laughs) could be put into a computer and then they print out and they go, oh, yes, this is the guy. There is no other white male. (laughs) I love that that they they land on the final shot and even then you're looking at it going, nope, nope, that is just a generic face. I don't know what you're going to get out of that. And also, Bond knows the colour of his eyes. Yeah, that, that's weird. How did he see that? He didn't get that close to him. <laughs> and the shape of his glasses. He's, he's octagonal glasses and uh, blue eyes, more grey. More grey. Like, he didn't he get knows with, the shade. Yeah, he didn't get within about 20 metres of this guy. I can get you saying white, male, a rough age, late 30s, brown hair. That's all you get. And you can say glasses, but you don't say the shape. <laughs> Yeah. It was it was like a really uh, weirdly high-tech game of Guess Who. Exactly. And it goes on for quite a while. And there's Q. Everyone else is locked up and gone home. So there's the workshop. And it's just Q and Bond going, no, wider, full of lips. No, not that full. No, and, and Q just like typing lines of code into a early <laughs> 1980s IBM. It's hilarious. It's just really funny. It's preceded by another one of my favourites, which is the, the walk and talk through the, the Q lab. Yes. They're testing a bunch of stuff, yes. uh, which is always great. Like in this one, you've got an attack umbrella stinging in the rain. Oh, yeah. Um, and the I don't know what scenario this would be used in, but the attack ca- arm in the cast <laughs> where it suddenly zips out. 
and smack someone's head off. And it's one of those classic one-use-only devices. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Like, it, you know, you got to reset it, I guess. <laughs> you got to get the whole cast back on. Yeah. Repatch it. And then <laughs> imagine being Bond confronting a villain and having the fake cast on. First of all, surely it would be mentioned. Well, Mr. Bond, <laughs> I feel I have the physical upper hand on you at the moment. And then obviously Bond can reply, I think you'll find I have the upper hand. Bang. But you've got to imagine Bond having to wiggle his way around to go, if you would just let me stand next to you. Obviously, we're having a, a direct polar opposite confrontation. But if we could do this side on, uh, that would really help. Actually, if I could be on the other side of you, I just yeah. need to keep, I need to keep this. Um, to, 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 we need to sort of be meeting in the middle. I need my yeah, left arm. that side, actually. Can you come over here? Yeah, yeah. just there, right right there. Uh, and, and I'm going to stand yeah. next to you facing the same direction as you for some reason. Yeah, and it's a very awkward angle, actually. Only then can we negotiate a deal. <laughs> <laughs> also, would you mind if you sat down and I stood up? <laughs> because I want your head to be at my waist height for no reason. <laughs> A little like, bit to the left, right yeah, there. Just a, awesome. a little, okay, great. And thwack, deploy. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I, I should have mentioned with the Lotus is uh, Molina's Citroen. So they had a couple yes. of, uh, or three or four of those Citroens that they used for the chase in Spain. I'll bet because they really give it a bashing. They really do. And they had one that sort of was built to have the frame so it could go upside down and then end up back on its wheels and right. they could keep going. But, yeah, it's a lovely sequence and it's actually really fun to see Bond in a non-souped-up car. <laughs> like, yeah, like he's in, a, he's in a tiny little Citroen. <laughs> yeah, it changes the stakes because, of course, if he was in his Lotus, he'd just be deploying fog and... and missiles. I think that thing's equipped with missiles. Missiles and all sorts of things. So, yeah, it's actually really fun. The final thing on my list, I do have a few other things I wanted to mention. But the final little thing from the movie I wanted to mention, and Nick Wiggins did flag this, was the appearance of Margaret and Dennis Thatcher. Oh, God, yes. I had, comple- I had completely forgotten this. I-, I wiped this from my memory. It is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen in a Bond film up until this point. What a weird thing to do. It's so weird. I forgot that they showed her face, like their faces. I thought it was going to be one of those, like, yeah. hair and you're like the big red hair. Okay, we know who that is. Like, like we see them from the back or something it's like oh mr bond but i do understand why they did it because it would have been such a novelty to have a female prime minister that i can see the novelty of wanting to go yeah let's get in a like let's have a fun topical reference to our prime minister being a woman and of course could margaret thatcher resist james bond and there you have a parrot just going give us a kiss give us a kiss And I like, well, I love that parrot because I love the way it reveals where Christatos was going. Yeah, well, like it actually ties into the plot. It's, it's, it's a, not just it's, a gimmick. It's it's quite yeah, good. It's a Chekhov's parrot, you know. <laughs> um, and yes, and remind me to talk about the Chekhov's scuba tank as well. Yes. But I really do like the parrot. But then that whole ending where it's just, it just cuts from, you know, the final confrontation on the mountain. They throw the ATAC over, it smashes, Gogol smiles, wanders Girl's off. like, oh, well. And then Bond goes around the corner to see Columbo being treated by B.B. Dahl and gives a seedy giving, wink. Gives a seedy wink. Seedy, seedy wink. And then it just cuts to Bond and Melina on, you know, her boat just m- making out. <laughs> it's really, sure. And Roger Moore kisses in this kind of suctioning way. It's quite, 
you don't like his technique. No, I feel like a kiss with Roger Moore is like 75-25. You know, he's 75% of the the hot tongue action. And, you know, he's kind of just there like, you know, it's really visceral. And He's doing a lot of the work. Yeah, he's doing a lot of the work, you know, possibly more than he, you know, really should be doing. (laughs) And and then they just get interrupted by MI6, who, similar thing to Moonraker, like, we've got the PM standing by. And then it's Margaret Thatcher, and, of course, they drop. It was a very similar moment to Moonraker, actually. But you're right that they take it one step further, which is that they they do this entire skit. And it's just, it it doesn't, it's not funny. (laughs) Like it's not well, yeah. like I guess the, the final tag is is fine, like in a in a in a Bond movie sort of way, but it's just I don't see why they have an entire goofy comedy skit involving Margaret and Dennis. I don't get it. <laughs> I feel like the reverse, you know, like the claw from uh, Inspector Gadget or something. <laughs> where you don't see the face, but you yeah. know it's the big red hair would have been a better way to get around that but then it's also weird that they have this movie that's a little bit more mature a little bit more they made a deliberate effort to ground the movie make it more of a grown-up spy thriller without any of the goofy like science fiction elements but then they end it with this intensely goofy skit it's so weird it's so (laughs) oh i should say it's not funny but yeah as as nick warned us about it actually i thought it was either this or octopusy so you know yeah, I I, I, i'd forgotten which one it was in and when it showed up i'm like oh here we go yeah well the other thing i wanted to talk about was the poster for this film because oh, okay i do think that this poster is possibly the most iconic bond poster now is this the one where he's like between the legs yeah right okay it's so good it's a good poster it's, it's striking a, it's a corker uh, <laughs> And I was reading that it was actually quite controversial in parts of America because you can see her butt. So what they did, they actually put the girl, because it's not anyone from the film, obviously, it's a model. They put her bikini bottom on backwards. So rather than the back of the bikini, you know, actually covering the butt cheeks, they had the front of the bikini on the back, which, of course, is cut higher. So that allows the butt to be seen like the buttocks to be you know is part that a of picture, though? because i thought this this is an illustrated no like, it's a photograph it's from a photograph it? yeah it's from a photographic source oh so, okay right well i i think it, in some it was a photo but then it's obviously been illustrated and you know since then but i'll read you what i found here we go the promotional cinema poster for the film featured a woman holding a crossbow she was photographed from behind and her outfit left the bottom half of her buttocks exposed the effect was achieved by having the model wear a pair of bikini bottoms backwards so the part seen on her backside is the front of the suit the poster caused some furor largely in the u.s with the boston globe and los angeles times considering the poster so unsuitable they edited out everything above the knee whilst the Pittsburgh press editors painted a pair of shorts over the legs. Right. So there you go. I really do think as far as James Bond promotional images, promo images goes, I think this is one of the best because it's so evocative of Bond. Yeah, it's a very Bond poster, especially because the girl is holding a crossbow. Exactly. So So it's it's a very, yeah. You've got sexy but dangerous. Exactly. Beauty and danger combined. And you've got Bond sort of, you know, aiming 
For, for all those people, it contains everything from the movie. Like, like for people who haven't seen it, it's Roger Moore's James Bond in his tuxedo doing the, the the gun barrel pose, and then it's also got the weird underwater like robot suit, their underwater craft, some sharks, the German man, a yep. ski chase, a helicopter dangle. Yep. Uh, they've, they've got the helicopter from the opening, and it's yep. even got like the Lotus and the Citroen and the uh, and the ship exploding. So it's got oh, everything. It's really... the only thing it doesn't have is some implied uh, underage sex. <laughs> because everybody already knew that Stu. sure i mean they knew that they assumed that going in you don't need to advertise that (laughs) maybe i'm wrong maybe this is just my perspective but i always felt like this photo was it for me in terms of because i think that's a very powerful pose and the woman is powerful in this photo and yes i know she's in high heels and a bikini it's not practical at all but it's such a power stance she's literally positioned over bond like like she covers him totally yes uh which is interesting and also i just want her legs like (laughs) other cinematic legs can come close to these legs i mean i just want to know the squats she did or what like what kind of you know buttock tightening exercises she was doing I've got to know. Uh, well, it was the early 80s. We're probably talking like some jazzercise or something like that. Yeah, maybe a Jane Fonda workout tape. Most definitely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also really love the sequence, and it's one of the sequences in the film that I've always remembered the most, the keel hauling. So when oh, Bond, yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so when Bond and Melina are caught by Christatos, again, really clever. Like they go down to the St. George's. They find the ATAC, they bring it to the surface, and Christatos is there and he's killed their crew and he's in charge. He gets them to do his dirty work. Mm. It's really clever. And so they tie them again, could have just shot them, but why? When you could tie them together and then drag them behind your high-powered boat. Absolutely. Until they're torn to bits on the coral and the sharks get them. And we, we see that because another henchman gets thrown accidentally into the water and gets attacked by sharks. We should actually do a bond count of how many sharks. like put an s beside each bond film that has sharks in it you know like a rating system (laughs) s is for sharks u is for underage sex (laughs) (laughs) oh we joke because it's funny but i love that keel hauling sequence and i remember loving the way that they once they were able to get free from the rope they swam down and picked up the scuba tank that Melina had left there. <laughs> they, they, that she had left there for no reason that I can see. No reason. I still am <laughs> trying to work out exactly why she decided to leave her scuba tank down there. Because the only reason you can think of is, oh, it's out of air. But then you just go back to the top and refill it. The literal reason that she left it there is so that they can pick it up later. But there's exactly. no, I do not understand the reason she leaves it behind. Not at all. I also love in the fact in that scene, it reminded me of Thunderball. And you know how we joked with Thunderball that James Bond and Domino meet underwater again and then just like run together or swim at each other. Yes, and then yeah, yeah. This was a similar thing where she's underground, you know, vacuuming sand off an old Greek temple underground, Mm. uh, which is, you know, beautifully white and and fresh, despite 5,000 years being (laughs) under the sea. You know, really beautiful detailing on the columns. Uh, (laughs) Well, I did wonder that. It's one of those things where you're like, that's either an actual Greek ruin or they're in a tank somewhere. Oh, they're in a tank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
well, with this, these movies, it's 50-50. It's like, I don't know. Well, I'll, I'll get to that because she's in – what I love is that she's in a small, like a bikini bottom and then like a neoprene vest. Sure. Bond's in full body wetsuit. Full, including, neck to knee, neck to ankle. <laughs> head. He's got like the cover over his yeah, head. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But what happened with those – is that Carol Bouquet apparently had a medical condition that prohibited her from filming in a tank. Like, she actually couldn't be underwater for any length of time. So what they did was they faked it on a dry soundstage. So all of the shots were underwater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A combination of lighting effects, slow-motion photography, wind and bubbles added in post-production gave the illusion of the actors being underwater. Holy shit! Yeah. So when you see them swimming about and stuff, that's stunt doubles. But when you see the close-ups of their faces, that's... I did not clock that at all. There you go. That is astonishing. I remember watching it going, that looks so close. Like, they look too sharp for water, if that makes sense. Like, there's... You know, water kind of gives that slight filter effect. Yeah, absolutely. But but then they've they've done very clear underwater photography previously. So I just assumed they'd done it again. No, no, that's... Uh, that's amazing. I meant to mention this last week with Moonraker and I forgot, but when Roger Moore is in that um, centrifugal machine... Oh, yes, yeah. I don't even know if that's the right term because I once brought that up with Greg from the Smart Enough to Know Better podcast and he told me that centrifugal force doesn't exist. or so, There's something I got oh, okay. wrong. Maybe centrifugal force does exist, but there's another one. I can't remember. Smart Enough to Know Better can look that up and get back to us. <laughs> um, so in Moonraker, Roger Moore is in a machine, but obviously they're not spinning him around at 20 Gs. <laughs> yes, you would, you would hope not. So Although, again, have... given the track record of these films, maybe. Uh, well, they wouldn't do that to Roger Moore. He's the no, head back. That's true. They, they would do that to some poor stuntman. That's right. What they had was they had Roger Moore, like they have the camera on him in this little cubicle or set piece that he was in, and they literally had a fan or a, a vacuum cleaner on blow out of shot that he was holding in his hands at his face. And I was going to say, yeah, because they got that effect somehow of, like, the skin on his face sort of peeling back. Yeah, high-powered wind machine. <laughs> you know. And so it's a similar thing with this. They just have wind machines on them so that hair looks like they're floating in water and I guess their their bits and bobs look like they're moving. But, yeah, really interesting. That is absolutely amazing. I, I did not clock that for a second that that was not underwater photography. Yeah, well, the underwater photography, of all things, was filmed in the Bahamas again. Of course it was. Yeah. <laughs> That's their go-to. Um, there was a disturbing amount of underwater action in this film. I was very nervous, but it, it never got to Thunderball levels of just endless underwater sequences like like every underwater sequence had a purpose it had a clear direction you knew what was happening you knew what the stakes were that they they managed to balance it quite well so i was very happy about that i think they did a good job and that's and that's one of the things that this film always gets praised for is its action sequences and set you know i guess stunt sequences underwater sequences yeah i think deservedly so Mm. What do you make of the Milos Colombo character, the Topol character? I liked him. He he was a lovable rogue. He, he sort of filled what we'd previously seen the character in uh, From Russia with Love, uh, the the um the ally character. Yeah, Ali Karambay. Yeah, Ali Karambay. Yeah, yeah, that, that, that sort of one where, where you've got like yeah. the ally. Like he goes from the person you think is the Bond villain to the ally character. And I think that happens then subsequently. I think they probably base it on this. You get sort of lovable rogues who help out Bond 
And I, I guess, I guess, um, in On Her Majesty's Secret Service is more the model where his his father-in-law is like a villain. He he's a criminal, but he also helps Bond, and he has this army of henchmen that he can call on to help him as well. Uh, he was a really cool character. I, I like that scene of them deciding whether or not they can trust each other. I, I quite like that for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> just it really it really i was like that's good i like that with the drinks and he says cheers and bond says yasu <laughs> well there was a couple of other things that i just wanted to mention i had a note just a weird moment uh, obviously um m isn't in this uh story because the actor who played m died uh yes. but they, they very sweetly didn't immediately recast him and just said that he was on holiday i guess he'd yeah. gone to a farm upstate i don't know <laughs> It was, and this is the first time that we see Bill Tanner as the MI6 chief of staff, who's still around today. Like, he's one of those Bond regular characters who you always forget about. Is he in the films even now? I believe so, yeah. I know he was played by Michael Kitchen, I think, in the Pierce Brosnan films. Oh, okay, radio. can't remember who plays him in the Daniel Craig, but he's definitely around. Right, okay, fair enough. Um, mm. well, the, the the thing that I noticed about that scene was just that the minister at one point sort of, like, it's it's such a weird moment. The, Bond sort of is like, uh, well, I should probably go do that, sir. And he's like, mm, mm. And Bond's like, well, I'll I'll go do that. And he's like, mm, mm. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell? What a weird moment. Anyway, that, 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 just, that just stuck well, out at me. I should point out that same scene. Is because Bond goes to Spain and he's supposed to interrogate Hector Gonzalez, the assassin. Yes. But, of course, he gets shot Melina by Melina before he can do that. And then they're like, oh, well, you've stuffed up Bond. You've stuffed yes. this right up. And he's like. You've made a right mess of this. And what I love is that he goes, well, if you look at paragraph four on page two of my report. And I went, have we actually seen Bond deliver a report? <laughs> report? Maybe he's not a bad spy after all. Yes. It's the first time. 20 years of Bond films and it's the first time we've seen a report he's be delivered. Report. Yeah, I, I want to see that scene where he's just sitting down, like typing away, writing stuff up, getting the tip, getting the white out, out and, yes. and making a mistake. <laughs> the, the other thing that uh, I, I was really, I, I, I don't know why, but like for some reason, I think it's because she's more age appropriate. Like Moneypenny's scene with Bond in this one was just really lovely. As most of them are, but like they, they just have this lovely familiarity. And, and I, I looked this up today and Lois Maxwell and uh, and Roger Moore are the exact same age, which is why I think it maybe like spoke to me a bit. Yes. And <laughs> I was just like, oh, that's good. That's a yeah. nice age appropriate pairing. And there's another lovely shot there too, a reverse shot where she's putting lipstick on kind of secretly because she knows he's coming. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and then, and then the, the, the hat comes over which is the first time we've seen that in a while because roger wants to wear a hat well he doesn't wear a hat exactly and and that that means that he was walking around in a bowler hat yes in 1981 1981 fair enough maybe he just has one that he brings into the office just to just does that trick yeah yeah (laughs) remember when we all wore these well we're approaching the end of the podcast which means it is time to rank this film in our list of Bond films, as we do this rewatch, we are ranking the films and the the, the list is starting to change and get a little bit more, you know, different now. Then not... I, I like that we don't have the exact same opinion on this. This is interesting. I'm really struggling with this one. So I don't know if you've already decided because I'm kind of still deciding. <laughs> <as we talk. laughs> 
Well, I've I've placed it. I struggled as well. I, I didn't know. I, I thought of for a long time about where to, to place it. I can say where I've placed it if you want to yes. sort of uh, a bit more time to think. Go for it. <laughs> so, I mean, I the highest ranked Roger Moore film that I have is currently in my number three spot. That's The Spy Who Loved Me, which is an absolute masterpiece. I love that movie. I don't think this movie is as good as The Spy Who Loved Me. And I know, I know... For Your Eyes Only is like held in high regard by a lot of people, but I feel like it's it's a bit of an overcorrection. I think they they went a bit too far into the grounded, grim and gritty sort of stuff. And it's not a grim and gritty movie, but in trying to jettison the more outlandish aspects, I feel like they lost a lot of what makes the the Roger Moore era fun and good. So the next highest Roger Moore one that I have is Moonraker in number seven. And that's that's behind Diamonds Are Forever, Doctor No, and On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And then you get to Moonraker in number seven. And I couldn't put For Your Eyes Only higher than Moonraker because I I really liked Moonraker. I think Moonraker is the, the Roger Moore era either at its, you know, if you hate that stuff, it's the worst movie. Or if you like that stuff, it's one of the best. And I was like, look, I really enjoyed Moonraker. I had a good time. It was better than I thought it was going to be. This movie is just sort of fine. It's fine. It's not bad, but it's also not, it doesn't live up to the sum of its parts. And so I was like, well, I can't put it above Moonraker, but I think it's better than Live and Let Die. So it goes in number eight, just below Moonraker for me. So seven, seven is Moonraker, eight is For Your Eyes Only, and nine is Live and Let Die. Okay, so I'm in a pickle because I can see the value of this film as a good, steady, solid Bond film, not too much guff, a different tack after Moonraker. You know, I can see the system in doing what they did. There's lots of it I like, but I am just thinking I don't watch it. Again, I have to reckon with (laughs) I have to I have to reckon with my emotional tie to it, and I just don't have the emotional tie to this film which is probably my fault for not watching it so I can't judge that too harshly like if I was to judge on pure rewatch and it would be last if I was going on pure (laughs) watchability because I I I don't think I can put it higher than on Her Majesty's Secret Service because I think that's a better film yeah that's and that's lower in my list than it is on your list so under on Her Majesty's Secret Service I've got Thunderball You Only Live Twice and The Man with the Golden Gun and all three of those, I would probably watch ahead of For Your Eyes Only. Really? You you would watch Golden Gun over For Your Eyes Only? Well, it's got Scaramanga and Knickknack and all the things that when I was... That's true. All the things that I was trying to rate with The Man with the Golden Gun and ended up having to put it last because the plot just, you know, was a bit stupid. I feel like this is in the same wheelhouse as The Man with the Golden Gun. Like it's Oh, my better. God. No, 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 I don't... <laughs> No, 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 no. I'm, I'm just shocked. Like, like this is going to be your last place movie. I don't know though, because I don't think it deserves to be at the moment. Because I think I know it wouldn't be for long. Because I think there are others that are coming up. That <laughs> but the question for me is, can I rate it higher than Thunderball or You Only Live Twice, which are such? Again, it's trying to balance for me how much I watch it, how much I just love it, how much I have the emotional connection, versus actually what it is as a film. Sure. So, well, look, look, Natalie, if I can, if I can just like try to sway you one way or another, I will point out that Thunderball is a full working week long. It's five days long, so that has to count against it. I mean, you know, th- this movie is much more economical in terms of its running time. All right, Stu, you've convinced me. <laughs> 
I'm going to put for your eyes only after On Her Majesty's Secret Service and before Thunderball, You Only Live Twice and The Man with the Golden Gun. And I think that's because it is a stronger, there's things with the plot that are done better. I like the way that Melina is woven into the plot and I like the reveal between Christatos and Columbo. I think that's quite fine. And there are a few other little elements in there too, like when Bond throws, I forgot to mention this, but he's got that helper Ferrara in Italy who then ends up dead because, of course, after Bond is – meanwhile, Bond is fending off three ice hockey players for reasons. (laughs) I can't believe we didn't even mention the ice hockey attack scene. He's literally come off this massive ski chase. And he gets out of his car and he should be bruised and battered and, you know, bleeding. But he goes in to see BB to find out more about her, you know, because she has a crush on the East German dude and Ziegler. Have I got the names wrong? I thought his name was Hans Wolf, but actually I think she calls him Ziegler. Oh, my God. I might be Ziegler, yeah. That wrong the whole thing. It doesn't matter. He's the blonde, the blonde henchman. <laughs> oh God! Somebody's going to have been writing in, and and I'll finally correct it at the very end. But yeah, he goes in to see her to find out more about her boyfriend, and then they leave, and he's still on the ice for some reason. Why doesn't he walk off the ice with them? And then three <laughs> ice hockey players come out and just start beating the shit out of him. But somehow he's able to puck them. You know, is it a puck? You know, puck he's able. To, yeah, he's able to puck them up, and they go into the goal, and the siren sounds off. <laughs> Each time he does, like someone's up in the control booth hitting the button because it doesn't happen automatically when you go into the goal. Like someone's sitting there pressing a – anyway, dear Lord. Um, yeah, so he, he, he pucks up some hockey players. So there's all these kinds of elements that are a bit wacky but also quite fun. Yeah. The pre-credit sequence is, is weird. I just don't know. I don't know. It's I, a bit of a hodgepodge. It is a bit of a hodgepodge. And, I again, do I go – I've said it now. So, look, I'll say it. I'll put it under On Her Majesty's Secret Service. I'll put it above Thunderball. Just so, so where is that in your list? What, what what spot is that? That is in ninth position. Okay, so that's not far off. So I've got it in, in number eight spot. Yep. So we're, we're actually – we're pretty close again. And, and it's interesting because this movie is – it has its fans. There are people out there who really like this one. And it's interesting yeah. that we've both gone, eh, it's all right. And I'll definitely say that – Roger Moore, again, proves that his best look is a tuxedo, particularly if he's lost the jacket and it's just the shirt and the pants. Uh, he goes to the casino in the tuxedo and the casino in the tuxedo. And there's this weird shot of Melina. She's also at the casino and she watches him like leave with the countess. Mm. And she gets this really dark kind of look, but then it never comes up again. It's sure, weird. plot point, plot point. Yeah. Uh, but the, the thing that I did notice was that um, if you want to make Roger Moore look far older than his 51 years, put him in a nice baggy jumper. Oh, uh, He looked like someone's grandfather who would like was out in the garden pottering yeah. about a bit, you know? And they put him in a white and stripy beanie for the ski chase. And I know yeah. they have to have that to make them stand out. It's like he just—he's in like a pom-pom beanie. What are you doing? Yeah, like, although he is—he is rocking the blue ski suit again, which I quite liked. Yeah, but like now, at Pierce Brosnan in the world is not enough. He's in full black ski gear when oh, he's yeah. on the slopes. And same with Daniel Craig. It was like always just all black. And he—they would get away with not putting them in beanies, I think, at some points now because yeah, you don't definitely. want to spoil the hair. Like a beanie shows—it's like wearing a mask. You know, it's that whole. Oh, <laughs> You know, real men don't – like, remember in Game of Thrones when they did the Magnificent Seven north of the wall? 
Yeah. And none yeah. of them are wearing beanies, except I think for Gendry or something. Like yeah, they're it's all like, like you have to have out. a beanie on. You're in you're in the Arctic. Yeah, you are losing heat through your head, people. Just get a beanie on. But then of course it's Jon Snow, and I don't want him to cover up those beautiful curls. Absolutely no. not. I don't know. I th- maybe I have to change my mind and put it in last place. I don't. Last place. It won't be in last place forever. <laughs> it won't be. But I don't. I'm really struggling. Well, Natalie, don't, don't. I'm, I'm basically just shit stirring at this point. Like, like if you, if you feel that this is a last place Bond movie for you, then that's where it needs to go. How do I rank it? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I can rank it ahead of the man with the golden gun. I think that's probably. I mean, I would certainly put it ahead of the man with the golden gun. The man with the golden gun is a failure of a movie. This isn't a bad movie. It's just not no, a okay. good movie. <laughs> oh, I'm so torn. I'm really torn because. I think as a movie, it holds up better. But then it's got Margaret Thatcher at the end, like the beginning and the yeah, end. Really yeah, Like at least Moonraker, the ridiculousness is consistent. Exactly. That, that's why I like that movie. And I, I liked it a lot more than I expected to on the rewatch. Okay. I'm, you know, can I put this movie above? I can definitely put it under On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But can I put it before Thunderball and You Only Live Twice? <laughs> They're iconic Sean Connery movies. They are. I, okay, I'm going to put it under You Only Live Twice. So it's going to be second last after The Man with the Golden Gun. I'm sorry, okay. Stu. No, no, that's quite all right. I'm really struggling now with these films. I think we've talked about this before, but I've never done that full kind of ranking. No, and this the- is what I love because we're going through it in release order. And so we're finding we're finding the ways they fit together that aren't immediately apparent to someone like us who goes back and watches them piecemeal, you know, yeah. where we're watching them as they come out and we're seeing how they relate to each other. I really like, it's really interesting how, yeah. how they react to each other too. Like, you know, this movie is definitely a reaction to Moonraker and it's fascinating. And, but, but I think Moonraker works better as a film because it knows what sort of a film it is and it plays, everything plays into that. Whereas this movie is very, we want to just make a Bond film. It's like, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, girls and and not like gadgets, but not really gadgets. And it should be a spy movie, I guess. And it should have like some stunts. But other than that, uh, who knows? Yeah. Okay. So that's your final word in 11th place? I think I'm comfortable with it being there because I think there's still going to be a lot of films that come in underneath. So it's still going to be roughly in the mid range. But I might change my mind next week. I don't know. I'm really scared now. All placements are final once we finish the podcast. Oh, no. <laughs> I feel maybe, like... maybe maybe at the end we can do a reshuffle. I feel like we should be able to go away and do, okay, now that we've seen them as a whole, what, where would we put them? As opposed yeah, yeah, absolutely. To... That, that, that might be something fun to do. The final ranking. Well, okay. So for now, for your eyes only, is your ninth pick? Eighth. Eighth pick? In eighth. Mine is in 11th place. Just ahead of the man with the golden gun. That's interesting. Yes. Obviously, my my last place is, of course, Thunderball, a movie that is six days long. I'm so interested to know if something will go worse than that for you. I'm interested, too, because that movie is... uh, Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it's a self-fulfilling cycle, though. I feel like, you you know, you keep telling yourself it's bad. I am really interested to know if you went back and rewatched it at the end of all this. It's the movie that squanders its own premise so much because that is a rock solid premise and it chooses to instead of dealing with the ticking clock of of diffusing this international nuclear situation it chooses to have endless endless underwater scenes my god 
I'm just saying, like, that's why Thunderball's down the bottom, is it, it squanders its own premise so egregiously that I, I just could not... I've not I've not found another movie that does that so badly. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, let us wrap up this podcast on For Your Eyes Only, and we will return next time with Octopussy, mm-hmm. Roger Moore's sixth Bond film. But not his last. Has he still got it in him? Who knows? We will <laughs> find out. Stu, thank you as always for joining me. Uh, it was a pleasure as always. It's going fantastic. We're kind of almost hitting the halfway point of this because this was film number 12 and there are 25 almost. No, well, there are 24 out currently. So we're at the halfway point. This is the halfway point. Okay, that's cool. That's exciting, but also kind of terrifying. Like, that's (laughs) strange. We'll have to start thinking of other ideas for podcasts. Uh, (laughs) But until we do, until we do, my name is Natalie. And I'm Stu. And we're shaken. Not stirred. Woot.